Yeah, if you're if you're living your life as a Seinfeld character, something is maybe not necessarily going wrong, but something is something is happening behind the scenes there. <laughs> something you might want to reconsider. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. In this episode of Just Sustainability, we'll be doing something slightly different from the usual again. Last year, as the first season of Just Sustainability was winding down, I had a conversation with a friend, Amanda Corris, about using podcasts as a way to make academic scholarship more interesting, and more importantly, more accessible for folks outside of the academy. We were, and I think are, um, both of the belief that the primary means of academic discourse, more specifically professional journals, while perhaps good at weeding out bullshit, are expensive and usually hard for the average person to get a hold of. Podcasts, on the other hand, are widely distributed for free and easy to download, even for folks with inconsistent internet access and limited technical skills. That conversation led me to ask Amanda about her current research, which revolves around why and how the academic community, particularly philosophers, should better engage with and integrate the general public into their scholarly work. For those of you who aren't familiar with my career, I'd like to describe myself as a philosopher by training. Being a philosopher, at least by training, I was really curious about how other philosophers are trying to do more community-engaged and participatory scholarship. So, I asked Amanda if she'd be interested in joining the Just Sustainability team and creating an ongoing series of episodes where she would chat with philosophers, mostly environmental philosophers, philosophers of biology and ecology, and philosophers of cognitive science, about how they are partnering with communities to work on scholarship about the environment and sustainability. To introduce the new series, which will be interspersed periodically with regular episodes of Just Sustainability, we thought it'd be fun to record an episode where I can introduce you to Amanda and her work. So, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Amanda Chorus. And we are recording. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we need to, like, be super, like, okay, we gotta be on task now. It, but it always is a little weird. Like, once you hit record, um, there is always that moment of awkwardness. Real. Yeah, well, no, because, um, feels like oh we're on stage now uh let's let we have to be in our stage voices and then like yeah we, we have to we have to think about what we're saying we have to re- remember our lines yeah yeah oh i'm terrible at memorization too so it's like i i would because i you know i was looking through you know points that we were going to talk about and i'm like okay i could just memorize all these like really fancy things i'm saying and no that's not gonna work that's just no work. yeah uh yeah, I, I memorizing doesn't work either. This is yeah. always like when I get asked to do other things where I have to answer questions, I'm always terrified because like, I know I'm going to forget what I want to say before I get to say it. And, and yeah. then right, it always turns out okay. Right? Like I, yeah. You know, but know. then the, isn't there, what's that? Isn't there some, uh, some like French phrase like spirit under the stairs it's like when you think of the perfect response af- way after the fact like the next morning you wake up and, oh i should have talked about this i should you know or it's like somebody's insulted you and you come up with the perfect insult like three days later yeah it's yeah. like the episode of seinfeld where <laughs> george is coming up with all the anyway um yeah no i yeah. mean that yeah uh, I, I think that's a i think that is a common experience right i mean I, I never like Seinfeld, but I assume everybody else likes Seinfeld because I think they were tapping into F, right the those common awkward experiences that no one wants to talk about because it's embarrassing, but everyone right. right recognizes the experience because everyone's had those experiences from time to oh, time. Oh yeah, yeah. Normally, definitely. not so back to back as the characters do in the show. 
But you know, yeah, if you're if you're living your life as a Seinfeld character, something is maybe not necessarily going wrong, but something is something is happening behind the scenes there. <laughs> something you might want to reconsider. If you're, yeah, if you you're really should think about running into trouble. Yeah. Well, you have, you have to think about how like your self awareness and like think about how to become more self aware. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, which is kind of what makes well. Anyway, now this is just the philosophy of Seinfeld, which they did do. They, I think, they did do oh, a really? book, the philosophy, right? In the there's like that series of uh, like pop culture and philosophy. I think there's a philosophy in Seinfeld one. There should be. If there isn't, there must be. There must be. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. So, I mean, to to be fair, uh, I I think I'm like woefully under I, this is always something i'm self-conscious about like i think i'm woefully underread for a philosopher right like we're, we're also like you know it's in our name we love knowledge right. but i i tend to right. be sort of a philistine when it comes to like reading like kind of interesting things like uh i tend to read like the things i have to read and then mm-hmm. trashy sci-fi <laughs> you know it's funny i do the same thing i it's almost like you know sometimes i come across stuff and i'm like no no i don't i don't i refuse to know this I know, I know, I, I I only have so many little boxes for knowledge in my brain, which is not a good way of thinking about the brain. But anyway, and, uh, and so that I can only, you know, if I'm going to fill them, I have to fill them with the really good stuff, you know? So, yeah, yeah. so, so trashy sci-fi, that's a good, that's a good box to fill. That's an important box to fill. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, I think for me, it's like, it's resistance against the system, right? Like, right. The yeah. man for me is knowledge. And sometimes you have to be like, fuck you, man. I'm going to do yeah. the thing I want. <laughs> I refuse to engage. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess we, we should get started. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, a relevant question to ask. And we were talking about self-awareness and like what we do and who we are. Uh, who are you? So who is Amanda Chorus in the words of Amanda Chorus? Yeah, so I am a philosopher above all, I suppose. Uh, I'm currently a postdoc at the Minnesota Center for Philosophy of Science at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I'm primarily interested in, in work on the relationship between mind and life and the environment. And, you know, I think these are all really sort of interwoven and interconnected in, in really important ways. And so this is what I eat in my work. Um, yeah. Say a little bit about that. Right. When I first became aware of you uh, as being another uh, University of Cincinnati alum, yeah, um, I, I remember like looking at it and like, huh, this is like an right, like an interesting connection. It's not one I would have immediately thought about. So, like, say a little bit about like right, like how you link like cogsci philosophy in mind with environment. Yeah. So, so I found that it all comes together really well, which is really exciting when you sort of find these connections between all the things you're in gen, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, don't have to just say, and I promise they all fit together in some interesting way. <laughs> and so I, you know, I sort of started off mostly just doing the cog sci stuff. I was really interested in perception mm-hmm. and how we perceive things in the environment. And then I was able to take some um, biology grad courses during mm-hmm. my um, time there, which was really great. And so got to sort of learn the, the biology that I thought fit in really nicely with, with how we think about perception and things like that. And then, you know, I realized, and this is, you know, again, coming kind of out of this work, um, I guess mostly, really actually mostly in developmental biology. Uh, but, um, but you know, the, obviously nowadays you can, there, there, there are, you know, all the sort of biological sciences are connected in interesting ways too. So you can talk about uh, environment or 
evolutionary biology in the context of developmental biology, right? Evo Devo. Right. And, and then you can throw ecology into the mix too. So you get eco Evo Devo. And, <laughs> and so, you know, what fields like that look at is these interconnections between all of these facets of, of biological life. Right. And, right. Um, and so, I, you know, tying in the cog size stuff was really exciting for me because I was like, look, you know, there are really interesting ways in which the environment shapes us and, and other organisms, all organisms right mm -hmm. and and how we live our lives how all, all organisms live our lives um mm -hmm. But also how we live our lives in turn shapes the environment, right? So this is a uh, uh, part of um, niche construction theory, mm -hmm. and and uh, it's, you know philosophers of biology are really spending a lot of time on recently, which is exciting to see. So you know there's really the sense in which uh, mind, life, and environment are all sort of bound up in each other, and right. so you know coming from the cog size side. One of my primary interests was in, you know, how we can understand the mind taking these insights into consideration. And so a lot of, you know, my work focuses on how, you know, I think at least we can't really understand the mind without understanding, you know, the body through which mindy things happen and the environmental context in which those things happen. Mm -hmm. so, so they're all really sort of interwoven in, in, I think, this really interesting way. And so that, you know, pushes against... Um, some sort of more traditional views, both in cognitive science and, and in biology, which I think is interesting, where, you know, in, in, uh, and, you know, things are starting to <laughs> sort of shift a bit, I think, you know, I think we, we've been working hard <laughs> mm -hmm. over on the, over on the uh, radical embodied cognitive science, to quote uh, Tony Chimero's book, right, uh, yep. side of things. Um but, uh, you know, we see, and even in, you know, popular culture, we see the mind as a computer, right? right. They, we, there's all these computer uh, sort of metaphors, how, you know, your, your mind is this, your, the brain is the information, information processing center, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so, you know, something similar, I feel like kind of goes on on the biology side where, you're getting, you know, the genes doing all this important work and things like that. So there's a lot of right. interesting overlaps between, uh, uh, between them and, uh, you know, exploring this maybe more radical side of things is, is it's a lot of fun, which is right. the important part. <laughs> no, no. And I, and I, I think that'll provide people a little, little context to, to think about, uh, the next question I'm going to ask you, which is, um, about, why you're on the podcast right now, because, uh, right. Like this is kind of our way of announcing that, uh, you're joining the just sustainability team as a new contributor and that you'll be, uh, creating, uh, I don't know if that's the way, best way to put it. Like a, I guess, a, a, a special series embedded yeah. within just sustainability special about feature. Yeah. Special feature yeah. or feature sounds like two, one time, but it's going to be an ongoing <laughs> series, which, I don't know if we have the name pinned down yet, but like, it's something going to be like something like just sustainability, like community engaged philosophy or something like that. Um, yeah. We need something snazzy, like philosophy yeah, out yeah. In, in the world for just yeah, yeah. sustainability. Yeah. So well, um, yeah. tell us about that and tell us about like how the series relates to the work and like the sort of people yeah. you're going to talk to and the sort of things you're going to talk about. Yeah. So, so I mean, just for me personally, within sort of the past couple of years, I realized that, you know, these insights into mind and life are, are totally relevant to how we think about sustainability in an environmental and social, 
social justice, right? So, you know, if it's the case, the environment shapes us in, uh, you know, as significant of a a way as it, as it seems, then that environment matters. And and by environment here, I don't just mean, you know, the sort of nebulous concept of, you know, like that, which is not the organism, but, but the worlds that we inhabit, right? Our worlds that are shaped by our sociocultural norms and, and interactions and so on. And so, you know, how we think about the environment and why it is that we value things in the environment and, um, you know, how we value each other in that context is, I, th- mm-hmm. I think, really important. And also, so, so it all sort of, you know, comes together nicely there, I think. Um, and I was also just, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely w- uh, underwent a, a significant period of doom scrolling, as yeah. we call it, right? Where, <laughs> where I was like, okay, there is literally nothing more important talking about right now uh, than, than all of these things. And so uh, it feels kind of disingenuous to, to be doing anything other than this. But, that, but as I said, you know, I realized it actually all fits in together really nicely. And, mm-hmm. and there are ways for people to to bring their expertise to these discussions about sustainability, social justice. And um, I think in really interesting ways, you know, once we start to explore that, you know, intersecting space, um, we get a lot of really interesting insights into how we should think about, you know, what we owe to each other and what we owe to the, to the, to nature. Right. So, hmm. so the plan for, for this sort of a special, special edition episode series <laughs> ongoing series, um, is that, you know, I was really interested in focusing on the sort of, uh, work that philosophers are doing in, uh, and what, what could be sort of thought of as community engaged philosophy. Mm -hmm. So, so we see community engagement in things in science and things like citizen science, right? Community science, participatory research, all these sort of ideas that capture how, researchers work with members of the public to um, create these, you know, really nice research projects from, Mm -hmm. you know, all different kinds of things. There's, you know, Galaxy Zoo, which looks at categorizing different types of um, astronomical phenomena. And so people all around the world can get involved in that. You just go on the website and, and look at cool pictures and, um, or you can, you know, there's more localized projects, you know, going out into your local community and um, doing things like tracking uh, changes in the seasons, things like that. So mm-hmm. um, those sorts of projects, you know, I think, you know, are really powerful in, in that, you know, getting the general public involved, you know, gives them a picture of science um, that is, you know, much more interactive and much more meaningful to their lives, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. normally the sort of (laughs) stock image of science is, you know, scientists in lab coats uh, using sort of sophisticated machinery and some laboratory deep underground or whatever, right? Carefully pouring things into into test tubes, mysterious liquids, who knows? Uh, (laughs) Either that or David Anbro, who, you know, of course is great, but, um, (laughs) but, you know, we can't all be doing... It would be great if we could all be doing that, bro. Maybe, maybe we could. Well, we could but anyway, all be more um, like David Attenborough. We could, we could, and that's probably a good goal to have. Uh, but right, so the idea is this: you know, science is done in many, many different ways with many different people, and there are ways right. to get involved in science, uh, and that public engagement with science is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I think what philosophers are doing now is sort of doing something similar for philosophy, right? Sort of putting right. it out there in the world and, and sort of contextualizing it and situating it in society. And I think not only does this sort of allow us to um, 
sort of, you know, examine how philosophical positions um, mm-hmm. and, and considerations can impact the world uh, and have, you know, sort of pragmatic value in that way. But it also allows the general public to get involved with philosophical thinking, which right. I think is, is really cool, right? And, you know, anyone who's tried to who has who's ta- who teaches philosophy and has you know the slide at the end of the semester convincing non-majors why studying philosophy is important will know will know what that's like right it's like you know it, it's you know we we have good skills off for critical thinking especially nowadays right when misinformation is everywhere right. uh critical thinking is is important right so so I think what we're hoping to do here is, uh, you know, invite philosophers who are doing this, doing this mm-hmm. sort of contextualizing work, putting it out there in the world, uh, to speak about what um, public philosophy looks like and and what sort of benefits we can get from it, and also sort of what's on the agenda for philosophers working in this area. You know, right. um, I'm I'm sort of more of a more of a scout than than you know <laughs> a, a, a he, you know a tank heavy armor <laughs> heavy armor character uh, out in the field there, but um, so I've just mostly been sort of exploring the space and seeing how what people are doing and giving them an opportunity with the series to talk about that and to share with everyone um, what public philosophy looks like and what yeah. we can gain from it, I think is, is going to be really cool. So. No, it is super cool. I mean, I, th- I think it also helps. Uh, philosophy go back to its roots, at least Western philosophy, right? Like uh, yeah. I think those of us who are engaged in the Western philosophical tradition um, tend to trace ourselves uh, back to right the ancient Greeks and folks like Plato and Aristotle, uh, uh, who really did have a project that was more focused on thinking about what's the correct way for the the city or the state to operate, right? What, what, how yeah. do we have, how do we govern ourselves in such a way that we live good lives? And it feels to me that when we're asking question about uh, equity and sustainability, we're doing the same thing, right? We're just doing the modern iteration of that. So like, uh, just like Socrates used to just sort of wander around like harassing people. Um, <laughs> we need to do that more as modern philosophers, right? We need to be harassing folks on the street. I think so. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> And, and uh, yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think just as we think, you know, scientific understanding the scientific practice and understanding what goes into doing science is important for, you know, non-scientists to think about. I think the same thing can be said for philosophy. I mean, we, we all, you know, we, whether or not people know it, I think people do philosophy every day when they're thinking like, well, am I doing the right thing? And like, or uh, questions like that. Right. So giving them the space to explore that I think is, Mm -hmm. is really valuable. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, sort of, (laughs) well, some harassment is good harassment for a good reason. Right. I mean, harassment Mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, allowing people to really kind of question uh, their beliefs and, uh, and ex- you know, explore a bit more why they hold the beliefs that we do. And, th- and this mm-hmm. is, you know, very much what we do in the classroom, right? Like sort of inviting right. students to really kind of carefully explore their convictions and, and, and their, their philosophical um, beliefs, which they might not know that they have, but, uh, you know, giving them the, uh, the opportunity to do that. And so I think that, Again, in that you know, critical thinking is is crucial these days. Yeah. Now more than ever, right? Uh, then uh, you know, creating that space for people is uh, is valuable. Yeah. Well, and, and man, and I think uh, well, I mean, you think about like sort of public discourse now, particularly public discourse that affects 
uh, our political decisions, right? Uh, sure, yeah. Right, ethics and political philosophy, um, value theory, these are all things that I think get underappreciated, right? That that is, ends up being dominated by uh, e- economists, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think people tend to have too narrow a view of economists, right? Economists aren't just talking about, like, finances and, and money and monetary theory. They're talking about value. But, mm-hmm. right, they're talking about value from a particular lens. And I, and I think broadening the lenses with which we think about value in the, the public sphere and how, right, weighing of value is important for decisions. Uh, I, I, I think there's, there's something, well, there, we need more of that. And I think there's something about like community engaged philosophy that helps us get towards that. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and it doesn't have to be just about value either. I think it could be about more conceptual issues as well. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, in terms of um, sustainability, you know, one thing we might be really concerned with is loss of uh, biodiversity, right? Mm -hmm. But then, you know, there's sort of underlying questions about, well, what what are we counting as a species, you know, like what, yeah. what, and, and other sort of uh, more metaphysical questions like that. Right. Um, right. I think well, what kind of diversity are, matters most when it comes to biodiversity? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, what are the sort of interactions between organisms that are valuable in ways that other, you know, are going to be part of um, assessing you know, the sort of actions that we should take. I think that, right. you know, having a philosopher on board there to to draw out those um, sort of bigger questions, I think, is really valuable. And that's something that I've experienced myself. I've done a lot of uh, sort of interdisciplinary collaboration and, and, you know, sort of had a lot of experiences being able to say things like, well, as the philosopher in the room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, which is always fun because then people kind of perk up. They're like, oh, boy, what's the philosopher going to say? Uh, <laughs> but, but it's I think, you know, a lot of times, too, when working with scientists, those questions don't necessarily come up because they are sort of either underlying assumptions or, you know, things that uh, scientists just don't really have the time to be able to spend a lot, um, spend a lot of time on. Right. So um, I think, you know, there are ways in which having philosophers as part of these interdisciplinary uh, conversations can be really valuable because Mm -hmm. it allows people, again, I'm all, (laughs) I'm always talking about allowing space. I'm very <laughs> spatially minded, uh, which is not surprising. I mean, you know, we move in space, right? Yeah. So, um, okay, but uh, but yeah. So you know, creating that space for people to be able to say, like, well, hang on a minute. Yeah, what what do we mean when we use this particular term, right? Like, mm-hmm. what what is this concept really capturing? Is is that really getting at what we're trying to get at here? Um, and uh, uh, so, and I think it uh, too, and it's funny, I, I just saw this a bit in, in a, in a working group that I'm in that's composed of, um, philosophers, but, and psychologists and biologists, very right. interdisciplinary group. And, um, what I saw in that conversation is, you know, the non-philosophers saying things like, well, if I were a philosopher, here's what I would say. It's like, yeah, go, do, you know, get in there, like, get, do it. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. it's, it's only going to move the conversation. Well, hopefully it's going to move the conversation forward. I guess we do get stuck a lot sometimes, but, uh, but, uh, you know, and, and I think that's really valuable. Yeah. Well, I, uh, 
two things that makes me think of when uh, the things you've said. First, I also use a lot of spatial like metaphors when I talk about stuff. Right, I always <laughs> talk about like thinking about possibility space and like make. Mm-hmm. I also talk a lot about making space. I feel like that there must be someone at Cincinnati that like uses a lot of spatial metaphors or like <laughs> relies on text that uses a lot of spatial metaphors and it gets in our head. I think this is a Cincinnati oh sure thing. yeah. Oh yeah, probably. I, I blame the psychologist. It's probably the ecological psychologist making us think about how we move around <laughs> in space. That's. Pro- I think that's got to be it. Because yeah, I definitely do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the second thing is, uh, you use examples from uh, sustainability, but I think it's also true from equity, right? Because there's sure. a lot of conversations about like fairness and like there's assumptions about fairness and like assumptions about equity, but right, sometimes those concepts are not well. Uh, defined, right? So, like, right, we yeah. get it. We have this sort of like folk sense of what like means to be fair, but sometimes the folk sense isn't informative, particularly when people come from different like kind of perspectives and traditions. Uh, when we're trying to achieve fairness, right? We we do need to somehow sometimes spell out spell it out conceptually. And yeah, right? no, and I, I think, absolutely agree. Yeah. And I and I think the only way you do that fairly, right, is through. Um, community engaged philosophy right you don't you don't want yeah. a bunch of scholars going like this is what's fair for everybody why well, yeah absolutely yeah and and you do you know you do see instances where people come in and, and sort of take that perspective and then things go terribly wrong and then you know the community members are like well um this has not done anything for us <laughs> right, right. <laughs> maybe you've gotten your publications out of this but uh you know we're still here still dealing with the same issues. So, so yeah. And, and actually that's something that I've been really trying to emphasize in, in the, um, you know, sort of slowly blossoming work that I'm doing in, in socially engaged philosophy of science is looking at things like, well, what is it that we are bringing to the community? I mean, we know what the community brings to some, for the most part, you know, we know what the community has to offer us, but what are we offering them as well in these engagements? I think that's a really important part of the conversation. And, you you know, so, and maybe that's somewhere specifically that philosophers can sort of help make sense of that is thinking about the sort of interactions that we have with people and what we owe to each other in these collaborations. And uh, I mean, you know, that's very much tied up in these conversations about equity, right? How we want to do the sort of work fairly and and, in a just manner so that everyone uh, benefits in the same way, right? Or to the same degree. No, it's true. Because I mean, I've never really thought about that, but there there really needs, there does need to be an uh, ethics of, community engagement or an ethics yeah. of uh right community-based participatory research so sure. right I, this is not to say it doesn't get done i mean uh, i think public health folks actually have done a lot of yeah. work in it yeah. but um it's work that can be extended and probably set, extended fruitfully by philosophers who right think about ethics sort of more centrally as our I guess job is a weird way to put it, but like as our job, right? Public right, health folks yeah. do need to think about ethics, but in the end, they're thinking about like health outcomes and they're thinking about wellness outcomes. That's what they're aiming towards, right? We don't need to worry about the health and wellness outcomes as much, right? Those are sort of secondary for us. For us, it's those ethical outcomes or the ethical sort of, uh, uh, I guess, foundations for the work mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. to those outcomes that are the interesting part. And so I, I think there is room for us to be, as philosophers to be better engaged in that, that space. And again, right. I think we do that best, particularly when we're trying to do work that's, uh, uh, intended to benefit communities in partnership with those communities. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think drawing attention to the social and ethical implications in this work is, is really important. And I mean, you, you know, you don't have to be an ethicist to do it. This is the thing. Right. So I, you know, I do primarily false use science. I don't necessarily uh, do ethics specifically, but, you know, of course in the science that we do and, and thinking about um, things like, you know, scientific practice, I mean, there are right. social and ethical implications that are built into that, right? It doesn't right. come, there's no way to sort of neatly uncouple that, <laughs> right? This is the, the value ladenness of science, right? Right. Um, and it's important that we can contextualize it in the social sphere. I, I think, you know, I think we've actually seen this really interestingly with um, the pandemic, uh, have, right. you know, getting, giving people, people have been able to see sort of firsthand, first of all, how science works and mm. also the social and ethical implications that science has and for the, for the public. And it's been messy, of course. <laughs> um, but you know, those are sort of conversations that we can have. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, that's definitely a place where, where, uh, philosophers can come in and, and do that sort of philosophical work and, uh, invite others to engage in that as well. Yeah. And, we could do a little bit of that on this show. <laughs> That's exactly right. We're, yeah. we're set up in the, to have the space. We've got the space, right? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah show we're making is the spaces. space to explore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm super excited about, uh, right. The, to hear the episodes that, uh, that you're working on. Um, so, uh, I think you have one that's in progress and it should be out in the, hopefully by the end of the season. And if not the beginning of the next season. So I'm super excited for that. Yeah. Thanks. Me too. And yeah, so I, I've got one in progress. We touched on a lot of really interesting stuff. I think uh, a couple more planned and, you know, really just sort of hoping to hear from philosophers who are out there, you know, in the field, sometimes literal fields, um, which is fun, which is, which is a little bit my own experience too, which is fun to think about um, in terms of things like agricultural ethics, which we can get into if you want. But uh, yeah. anyway, and um, uh, yeah, just exploring, um, you know, what philosophy in the field looks like and how it can be fruitfully undertaken mm -hmm. and, could benefit not only those in the academy, right, but people in the community as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's exactly right. Um, so uh, I've been sort of dominating the conversation so far by setting the agenda. So I'd like to turn the tables on myself as, as, as we approach the the end of our our time. And so, um, are there any questions that you'd like to ask, or any topics that you'd like to talk about that I haven't gotten to? Um, right, like. I guess this is your opportunity to take the reins. And so reins, Amanda, take them. <laughs> oh, I wish I had actual, like that would be really fun <laughs> to have an actual horse and carriage with actual reins. I, I, I feel like I've been back philosophy. There is not. And there should be because, you know, you have the, the sort of exploration of the, of the land on horse. <laughs> All right. This is a weird tangent. <laughs> I just feel, I think I, I, you know, I've been like trapped inside my shipping container apartment for what, two years now. And so it's like, yeah. and whenever I think about sort of interacting with the world in ways that we don't normally get to, like driving a horse carriage, <laughs> I'm like, wow, 
that must feel really interesting to like have your body move in this way and like move with the horse, but you control it, but the horses do anyway. Yeah. Uh, so maybe there's like a, there's like a phenomenology of, of horseback riding. I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Taking the reins. So, so, well, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot and, and I'm interested mm-hmm. to hear what you, what you think as well is thinking about the sort of, you know, terms and, and concepts and ideas that we use yeah. in making sense of the climate crisis and its impact on our lives. Right. So yeah. there's like sort of a hundred different terms for eco-anxiety and climate grief and uh, what's, yes. solastasia, what's the fancy one, solastasia thing, um, <laughs> something like that. Uh, it's probably not right, it's probably, but you know, you, something along those lines. Right. Um, and so all these, you know, are sort of aiming to capture the sense that we have in mm-hmm. how we think about our relationship with the world in the time of climate crisis, right? But I think it would be really cool to see philosophers, you know, sort of coming in to do that conceptual analysis and really mm-hmm. sort of carefully, you know, pin down what we're talking about when we talk about things like eco-society. And mm-hmm. so, you know, like I mentioned, um, coming from the cognitive science side of things, how the climate crisis is impacting our cognitive lives is something that I'm really interested in. So mm. one worry that I have in, in sort of giving it treatment in just the sort of psychological realm is that we might think of eco-anxiety as predominantly a sort of pathology, right? In the right. same way we think about general anxiety or depression as pathologies. Um, but, you know, it's pretty reasonable to be anxious about the climate crisis, right? right, right. Uh, it's not really that, you know, something has gone terribly wrong with us. It's something has gone terribly wrong with the world. Okay. So, so um, yeah, I think sort of framing it instead of as a sort of stance on the world, right? One that's, um, sort of reflective of the state of the world itself uh, is might be a more helpful way of, of making sense of that. Uh, right. And also in figuring out what we ought to do, right? I mean, what are the right. next steps in dealing with this, both in our own sort of cognitive and affective lives, but also um, in, in, the, in our communities, right? Yeah. Well, so um, it's funny that that's your question. Cause I, I had a conversation this morning about the, the Did you? very topic. <laughs> yeah. With uh, Michelle Montgomery, who's a, ah. I think an agroecologist, uh-huh. no, or like a ethnoecologist at like you know, university of Washington, Tacoma. And uh, I don't, I can't remember how it started, but we ended up talking about like sort of the grief that people mm. feel uh, mm-hmm. about both like sort of, um, a lot of our environmental crises, but also like, yeah. but historical trauma. And then mm, she, mm-hmm. she sort of like turned it on, on the head uh, on its head for me. Right. She's, she's like, yeah, we need to decolonize emotions. And I'm like, what? And, and <laughs> so this is what she said, right. She's like, well, yeah. it's a really Western sort of, uh, view to think of like grief and anxiety as bad things, right? They're just emotions, right? right? We all have emotions right. for reasons. It's not right. We want to, from a Western sort of framework, want to avoid grief. We want to avoid anxiety. Uh, and that uh, avo- that leads us to avoid engaging fully with the world, right? Mm-hmm. We need to understand mm-hmm. that, like grief and anxiety, are not positive or negative. They they are just part of the human experience, and that right. they are us having a, sometimes appropriate responses to the state of the world, and those should inform us on how we do things, right? And then she relayed a story about I want to say it was like an aunt or grandparent who was like who was talking to her when she was little and uh, when she was sad about someone dying or something like that. And then uh, her, her grandma's like, you know, like, right. Like 
we're in a big universe. Things live, things die. There's this ongoing cycle. Why are you sad about this, right? This is actually something that's really beautiful, right? That we're all partaking mm-hmm. as, as part of this sort of grand cosmic uh, sort of like, you know, the, the cycles of energy and the cycles of, right, like, uh, of life and renewal, uh, right? Like, death isn't, right, just the, isn't an, like just an end. It's also, right, just right. sort of a stage of this sort of, uh, our participation in the universe. Um, right, yeah. But, right, and then she was talking about, like, right, like, it, it's just like the fall, right? Like, the the, the trees mm-hmm. lose the leaves, and, and we grieve the loss of summer. But, right, it it just means that we're moving to the, the next cycle of, you know, winter, and then the next spring, and then the next uh, summer. Um, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, the re- I think we need to think right? Less about eco-anxiety and eco-grief or like all the sort of forms of anxiety and grief related to the various tribulations that we have as a society it, in just sort of this like really negative way, right? It is us having mm-hmm. an appropriate reaction. It's us, uh, right? Our, our, you know, our emotional selves telling us that, look, this is something that we, sh- we are, we should be recognizing loss. We should be thinking about how do we transition that loss to the next sort of cycle of growth. Uh, and when you think about grief and anxiety, those are often, right, the, I'm just thinking about it, it seems to me to be the other side of love, right? Like, there's that mm-hmm. part of love where you're, like, excited and you're, like, you're really wanting to engage with something. There's, like, right, like, that, like, sort of, like, happy, positive side. But, right, if you really love something, right, you're, you're going to grieve and you're going to be anxious when you're faced with the the risk of losing that thing yeah and i then, love i think yeah yeah and then i think we need to learn how to embrace that right we need to sort of decolonize emotions and think yeah. from this less of this sort of right uh kind of standard western way of of facing grief and and anxiety as being unpleasant emotions to be avoided right and think of them as like right they're just natural parts of being human they are uh, an important part of us, maybe the, right, the non-cognitive part of us responding appropriately to the state of affairs. Uh, and then think about how that might be, right. How, how we might translate that anxiety and grief to growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting that you asked that because it, yeah, mm-hmm. it's been, it's something I was thinking about immediately prior to us, uh, uh, you know, recording together. That's so funny. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's exactly right. I, I absolutely agree. And uh, yeah, it's funny. It, that's actually, I think, really nicely related to the the grand project that I'm working on now, which is looking at the creative role of stress, right. um, get kind of both across uh, biological and psychological domains. So, um, and it's, you know, the same sort of thinking, right, is that, you know, we typically think of stress as being this negative thing and, you know, mm-hmm. having these detrimental effects on, uh, you know, people, organisms, systems, and so on. But that's not necessarily the case sort of across the board, right? There are ways right. in which stress actually leads to the creation of new, you know, novel traits and novel possibilities and things like that. And right. so exploring how things like stress and anxiety and grief and so on uh, can sort of create uh, ways for growth, you know, um, paths for growth, I think is, is really powerful. And I absolutely agree that, you know, it, it is very much sort of ingrained in Western culture to, to, um, 
to think of you know all the what we would think of as negative emotions as being these terrible things that we ought not talk about right and it, and it, it's funny that you mention uh death because um i think that's a really nice example of one where you know i mean so much of our culture is sort of built around not only not talking about death right, right. but also trying desperately to avoid it i mean right. you know there the, there's just so many uh you know medical advancements I, I mean i'm not an expert on this but it's my impression at least that um right. you know there's a lot of money going into trying to extend life for as long as possible because dying is bad it doesn't matter if the life you're living is good just as long as you're not dead right, right, right. Uh, and um and yeah i mean i absolutely agree and i think that the, the sort of wheel of the year is a really nice way of of looking at it because you know we associate um Moving into uh, this time of year, as as we are after the uh, the equinox here, as mm-hmm. uh, moving into you know old age in in the winter, um, mm-hmm. but of course you know again in the spring comes rebirth, and so mm-hmm. I think you know that's something that I would really love to see as more uh, you know a part of the discussion is looking at these sort of natural cycles of things and and by natural i mean in relation to nature not the not in in, not in terms of uh, um the opposite of artificial but uh, because that gets into all sorts of sorts of you know conceptual conceptually murky territory there um but uh as as part of you know just the way of life i mean Mm -hmm. it's not the case that um death is this final thing and it ought to be avoided and feared, you know, at every turn. Um, but it's yeah. just a part of, um, just, just, just as much a part of life as regular old fashioned living is. Right. And it's funny yeah. the other day I actually, um, I knocked over my, um, my coffee carafe and broke it. It shattered into a million pieces and scared the hell out of me. And, uh, and I was sad for about 30 seconds and I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. what can you do? Because <laughs> I was thinking about um, the, one of my favorite passages in Epictetus' handbook where he says something like, if you, if you, <laughs> it's really great. He's like, if you are fond of a jug, then say, I am fond of a jug. But don't be upset <laughs> when it breaks because that's just part of the nature of material things that, you know, part of physics. If they fall, they might break and you, that's just the way things go, right? It's, mm-hmm. So the, 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 you can, yeah, be upset for a moment if you like, but um, you shouldn't, it doesn't really make sense to be sort of, you know, overwhelmed with grief about it because it's just how things are and that doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a negative thing, right? So, um well, yeah, and the the craft over you know the next few centuries will grind itself back to uh, to you know sand. That sand will. will you know may possibly be melted by another glazier and turned into a, a different glass thing. Right, glass is eternal. Glass is maybe an interesting metaphor for <laughs> <laughs> it. Is right. It, I think it could be recycled indefinitely. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, same with right. ceramics, right? It, it grinds yeah. up and then it just sort of like right rejoins the the clay and the earth, and it could be recollected sometime, made into new ceramic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and I think to go back to what you're saying about you know thinking of anxiety as this negative thing and grief as this negative thing. Um, you know, I, I think that it is really powerful to sort of reconceptualize those feelings in light of all of, 
you know, what we've been talking about and that it is very much reasonable to, um, to feel at least a sense of tumultuousness, right, about what's been going on in the world, um, but thinking about how we're going to come out on the other side of it, right? So something that I've been looking at is, um, you know, thinking about resilience and how, if resilience is capturing everything that we sort of need it to and thinking about, um, you know, not only just sort of bolstering ourselves against negative effects from the climate crisis, but also thinking about the sense of growth and, and creativity, right? Mm -hmm. And how, you know, what are the sort of cognitive strategies that we're going to develop as a result of um, things shifting in this way? And how can those be um, beneficial to us, right? Mm -hmm. So that actually makes me think of a, a, a an old teacher of mine, Barry Chernoff, who was one of my uh, one of my postdoc supervisors way back in mm. the day. He used to go on about how much he hated the concept of resilience because resilience, mm. right, like is not a positive thing most of the time, right? It's staying the right. same, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. right, like, and you're talking about communities, like we don't want our communities to stay the same because right. in many ways yeah. they're sort of crappy. Let's do better. <laughs> like, how do we grow? Right. Yeah. Why yeah. are we finding so hard to maintain when we should be thinking about growing? Um, yeah, exactly. And acknowledging that the factors that are requiring resilience are, are things that we need to be reconsidering, you know, right. I think, yeah, I, I, I agree. And those are the reasons why, uh, you know, the concept of resilience does bother me is I think that we do need that discussion about how to, how to grow out of maybe even out of needing to be resilient, but, you know, at least having this more sort of creative aspect of it. But, uh, mm -hmm. and I guess, you know, we talk about adaptation a bit as well, but then that too sort of, I think fails to capture, um, you know, doesn't really sort of get at the, I don't know. I think yeah. anyway. No, I, I think it's fair. I think we, right. <laughs> this is why philosophy needs to engage in these things. Right. <laughs> right. It, it is worth thinking for. about like the way we conceptualize things and, uh, are the the ways we conceptual or do the ways we conceptualize things uh right did they actually capture what our aspirations are or should be right yeah and how can we use those concepts to guide action in the future right ideally what we want to be able to say is something like well we acknowledge that you know just to use eco anxiety for now we acknowledge that eco anxiety is a feeling is you know a sort of affective state that people are experiencing um and what are we going to do about it right what what's the sort of next steps and mm -hmm. um i think that's an important part of the conversation is yeah. action for moving forward and that's sort of, you know, so putting us back out in the world, right? It's sort of a very pragmatic approach. Well, what are we going to do? What's going to be useful moving forward? I think that's that you've got, you know, you can't sort of leave that out of the story. This brings us to the end of the conversation that I had with Amanda. I should note that Just Sustainability will be taking a short break until the beginning of February to give me some time to edit more episodes. At the beginning of February, we'll get to listen to the first of Amanda's special episodes, which will introduce us to Evelyn Brister, who is a philosopher of science at the Rochester Institute of Technology, who writes about how the discipline of philosophy might return to its roots and re-engage with communities. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. 
Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.